Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, and today we're going to be talking about an issue of immediate relevance and importance, which is the potential or probable reopening of schools in the next couple of weeks. What's happened to pupils over the last six months since lockdown started at the end of March, and what impact that might have had on them and how we're going to get children back into the classroom and get them catching up with learning that they've lost. And to do that, I'm joined today by Angela Donkin, who is Chief Social Scientist at the National Foundation for Educational Research, and Sarah Catton, who runs the education work at the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies. Let's start, um, uh, Sarah, just by uh, sketching out a little of what pupils have lost over the last few months since March. Where, what, what level of loss of education have we seen? So um, and the fact that the schools closed for um, over a term uh, represents a, about a 40% reduction in the instructional time. So the time they would have uh, gotten in the classroom with their teacher learning, um, as compared to what they would have gotten in a, in, in regular circumstances, so, so so that's a huge amount. Now, what sort of um, what what matters is what has been done at home to sort of compensate for this loss of formal instructional time. So, with colleagues of mine at IFS and at the Institute of uh, Education at UCL, we surveyed families with school-aged children over 5,500 uh, families in the, around uh, the month of May 2020. And we asked parents a lot of questions about how they and their children spend their time during a typical lockdown day. And what we learned is that on average, children actually spent uh, around four and a half hours learning on spending various educational activities, they spend around four and a half hours learning uh, per day. So now to sort of understand how much of a disruption this is to children's learning as compared to the pre-lockdown period, we went and looked at some other data, the UK Time News Survey from 2014-15. And in those data, we looked at how much uh, time children, both primary and secondary school children, spent actually learning, either in class or outside of class, doing homework, etc. And we learned that among primary school students, on average, they spent around six hours per day learning. So that's roughly the time that they spend at school. So for primary school students, that represents a drop of an hour and a half per day, less uh, spent on learning. For secondary school students, that reduction is even larger because before the lockdown, they spent around six hours and a half learning every day. And that went down to an average of four and a half hours per day. So that accumulates to um, you know, a big, big uh, drop in learning time over the course of uh, many weeks spent in lockdown. And the quality of that learning time has presumably or quite probably dropped for a lot of those children as well. Yes, probably. I mean, it's difficult to know exactly what was done, the quality of that of, of, of the learning that was done at home. But we could sort of um, guess uh, from the, the questions that we asked families and parents about the home learning environment, 
what uh, that l the l quality of the learning might have been. Um, we asked families about you know, how much the children had access to their own space, dedicated uh, study space to where they would be able to focus and uh, do their homework. We asked them also about um, how much access children had to a computer or tablet where they could access their schoolwork. And here we see, I think, the, the, the most striking thing that we saw in the data is that there were quite important gaps in, you know, accessing those things. So we, we can suspect there were big gaps in the sort of um, home learning environments um, and, and hence, you know, big gaps in the quality of the learning being done at home. I think uh, another big aspect of the quality of the learning being at home will also have been driven by the sort of resources that schools provided to children. And here again, in our survey, we asked parents what sort of resources schools provided to their children, and we saw lots of variation across families, with some families, some children, receiving a lot more active forms of support from their schools, so including online classes, video conferences, online video conferencing, online chatting, and others only receiving home learning packs or having access to an online platforms. And again, another small minority having absolutely no resources, at least back in May. And Angela, you've looked at this from a slightly different perspective, which is the perspective of the schools and the teachers, whereas Sarah was talking about the responses from parents and their understanding of what's been happening and the amount of learning that their children have been doing. What have, what have been the challenges facing um, schools and teachers over this period? Um, yeah, so I may just want to kind of pick up, I suppose, to start with on um, some of the figures that um, Sarah's just uh, presented, because I think that the four and a half hours a day um, actually... It, is, sounds quite good. Um, but I think that it's important to recognise that actually there's quite a lot of variation. So we asked a number of kind of uh, questions about engagement. And some of the reasons we, we asked a number of questions, because we, we weren't entirely sure who would know um, what. Um, so we asked senior leaders um, what proportion of uh, students they felt would were engaged in at least some learning activities. And I think that what's important to, to note here is that um, three in 10 primary and four in 10 secondary school children weren't engaged at all. So that's the view of the teachers. Their, their, their sense is that three, out, three or four out of 10 of the kids they're teaching just weren't engaged. Yeah, and I, and I think that, I mean, you could say... Um, you, may, you might want to question uh, the view of the, the teachers, but similarly, you could question uh, parents who might be overstating the, the number of hours that they're doing. Um, the, uh, the teachers themselves reported even lower engagement with the lessons. And I think that um, they reported about 60% regular contact with children. And then we had an even further kind of stricter measure of engagement, which was the number of students returning the last piece of work, and that was at 42%. But there was also big variation between um, uh, disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged 
um, children, and that was very evident. Um, those schools that are, are most deprived, only about half of the children um, were doing anything um, uh, compared to schools in the least deprived areas, which which had higher levels of engagement. So I think that I think that that you know that there are averages, but they mask quite a variation in in who's engaging. And um, what we did note that were, there was a, with this issue about IT was a, a major issue. And at that time, teachers were saying that one in four pupils had quite poor levels of access to IT. So that means that either they didn't have their own IT equipment or they had poor broadband. Um, and this was in May. I mean, we have actually uh, gone out since then and we'll be reporting on um, more up to date figures next week. Um, but I think that, you know, this issue about getting IT to um, pupils is, is really important, especially if there are further lockdowns, um, because it's a real barrier. So that's quite striking. Up to a quarter of pupils are, um, in, in the view of their teachers at least, struggling because they don't have adequate IT uh, equipment or, or, or adequate internet access. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is uh, quite a high figure. And although the government were doing, um, it said that they were trying to get laptops. I mean, I don't think that that um, was, was happening quickly enough. I'd also like to just share some other groups that had um, what, pe- what teachers thought lower than average engagement. I mean, base, let's face it, the average engagement wasn't that high anyway. Um, but one of the groups that... Um, I also think is interesting. I mean, vulnerable students, maybe that's um, to be expected, SEND. Um, but young carers also, quite a significant number of young carers. And I, I'm just worried about that group and the extent to which they, they actually had time if they were at home and also caring for others to engage with schools. Uh, how much um, variation did you find in the um in the practice of different schools i mean were, were, was was there a reasonable out consistency between schools and teachers in what they were delivering or did you find quite a lot of differences yeah a huge amount of uh, variation in um practice and i think sarah's also uh mentioned that as well um we looked at how information was got to students about what they need to do and also the, the method of the actual teaching um, I mean, some teachers in more, uh, you know, disadvantaged areas were actually walking round to children. Um, they were also, you know, doing safeguarding visits on foot, um, which is a slightly different issue. But yes, so we also we decided because of the the importance of engagement to run some regression models to look at what factors influenced better engagement with a remote learning and we found um, some things that I think would be useful for others to know about if we have to come back to this situation again. So there was a huge amount of variation. We saw low levels of uh, use of interactive teaching. So, you know, teaching that allows some form of chat between the teacher and the pupil. But that kind of teaching, it was seen to be um, particularly related to higher levels of engagement. Um, So I think there's more to be done with, you know, uh, providing Zoom lessons, for instance. And we found that that schools which had what's called a virtual learning environment, so it might be something like um, 
Google Classroom or show my homework. I think there's a whole range of these things, but they were used to providing um, content and homework, at least online. Those schools had a higher level of engagement as well. There were some other factors which weren't necessarily to do with the delivery. Um, we found that younger teachers struggled more, um, so probably need some support. We found that actually teachers didn't necessarily have the right IT equipment themselves, um, and that actually uh, teachers who had a better homeworking environment were better at delivering, unsurprisingly. Obviously, that IT access um, is a big driver there. And, and training, I think, was important as well for uh, teachers. So, you know, they're coming to this completely new, not ever having to have done anything like this. And I mean, it's all very well in hindsight, but, you know, they, they did what they could. And I think that now, though, we know that there are things that they could do better and we can help them to, to work out what those are. Yes, I mean, I think it is very striking, the extraordinary variation in, in practice. And, and, and Sarah, I think one of the things you find fairly clearly is from the point of view of parents and, and pupils, the what they experienced in terms of the practice of the schools was quite different according to the socioeconomic background of the children with those from higher, from better off um, uh, social classes um, getting more in the way of the sort of interactive, effective teaching that uh, Angela's describing. Yes, absolutely, Paul. So um, we uh, we look at you know socioeconomic gaps in a variety of learning resources, uh, uh, including the type of resources that children get from their schools, and this is perhaps a dimension of the. Um, home learning environment where we find some of the strongest um, socioeconomic gradients. So to give you uh, an example, uh, we find that the poorest fifth of primary school students, about 40% of the uh, poorest fifth of primary school students have access to some sort of active uh, form of support, so that includes, you know, online classes, uh, video conferencing, or online chatting, and that compares to about sixty percent of the richest fifth of primary school students. And among secondary school students, we see um, a large gap as well, um, with the poorest fifth, fifty uh, percent of the poorest fifth having access to this type of resources versus around 70% of the richest fifth. So uh, definitely strong, strong um, differences in the type of resources provided by the schools um, among children, richer and poorer uh, students. And uh, we also did some um, statistical analysis to see how much of those gaps in um, the type of resources received by students, along with the gaps in other aspects of the learning environment, such as, you know, having your own space to study and having access to a tablet or computer. Uh, we looked at how much of those gaps in learning resources could explain the big gaps in learning time that we also documented between the richest and the poorest students in our survey. And we find that among primary school students, um, those gaps can explain in those learning Learning resources can explain at most a third of the learning time gap between the richest and the poorest primary school students. Among secondary school students, 
we were surprised to find that they explain less than that. They can explain at most one-tenth of the learning gap. So, like Angela, I think these results sort of suggest that, you know, so closing the gaps in terms of the resources provided by schools and helping, you know, disadvantaged students have a better home learning environment uh, can and will help, would help, um, sort of closing the um, gaps in student engagement and in learning time. But our uh, interpretation of those findings also suggests that this can only go some way towards equalizing children's uh, learning experiences at home. And there's a whole load of other factors going on, you know, in people's households, in people's lives that, you know, will not be mitigated by providing uh, students with adequate um, equipment and by just uh, leveling up the quality of online uh, or the quality of school resources um, and so to us that sort of suggests that you know it is really imperative to reopen schools and to try and keep them um, open as long as possible so we're, we're looking here at a, a complex array of factors which uh, result in differential learning experiences part of which is to do with physical uh, infrastructure and IT equipment and, and space to study and so on, but part of which is also, it seems, to do with different practice um, uh, by schools and different expectations by pupils and parents. And, and you've talked about the importance of getting um, getting children back to school. And I think some people probably feel think that um, you pupils really were back at school at least by the um, you know, last month or so of the of the summer term but I think other work that um, you've been involved in suggests that that level of return was actually pretty limited. From the the the, the, the first survey that we did we found that actually when we'd asked uh, teachers how many parents they thought would send their children back to school they estimated that about half would. I mean this was actually before the schools opened and um, and actually that um, was borne out um, and I think that's quite surprising, you know, at what, what point ever have we been in this um, situation where of those eligible to attend only half uh, turned up? So so just just, just, let's just be clear about that. So when schools started to return, you're saying that half of those children who could and in some sense should have returned, half of them didn't actually go? Yeah, the DfE statistics... Um, that they, they started to collect statistics from um, schools on a regular basis. And the DfE statistics uh, bear that out, that about half of the children who are eligible to attend didn't turn up. Um, now, of course, it wouldn't be slightly different um, in September. First of all, everybody's had a little bit longer to get used to um, a, a kind of world in which we're reopening up a bit more. Uh, secondly, um, there is, you know, much more concerted effort to say that all pupils should go back to school. And just to add my weight to well, anybody who's listening, who's thinking twice about that, I, I do absolutely think that schools are the best place for children to be. But um, yes, there are, you know, there are a number of um, issues for schools to, to cope with. Um, and we don't quite know what's going to be happening um, in that first week of, of return. Um, maybe it's worth talking about some of the other things that um, schools might need to be thinking about given our research. So at that time, a number of staff weren't available to work full time. 
And of those, only a certain percentage were able to work at home. So um, around 29% of staff could only work at home because of shielding. Now, I think because shielding has been lifted, that shouldn't be as much of a problem. But moving forward, uh, I think it's important to note that one of the main reasons that the schools closed was because they were having trouble staffing them. Um, because I, you, if you remember, I mean, for a while, the the, the rhetoric was, well, we're going to keep s- schools open. And then all of a sudden people were um, asked to shield and they couldn't cope because of the, the numbers that, that went down. So, you know, that's always a possibility. If, if the numbers go up and shielding comes back in, then actually staffing the schools is, is an issue. And the other thing is that, you know, there are a number of additional requirements put on schools with regards to safety. Um, and, you know, with this first survey at that time, people were already asking for more resources, you know, resources to be able to cope with um, a mixed provision, for instance, in July. But um, I think that we need to be mindful of the fact that the requirement for schools to be safe actually is is a cost to them. So there are a number of challenges. A number of challenges, but as you say, quite important, very important for um, for children to get back, and as um, uh, and as your work shows, Sarah, um, that will be from a, a point I think in, o- in which only about one in ten were actually at school, um, even uh, even in July uh, on any given day. Yes, exactly, and I think what it was um, so very striking from uh, the research we did based on the second survey we ran, so in June and July, said again there are large inequalities in who chose to send their children back when you know school attendance was optional. Um, and among uh, the children who had the option of going back, we again see large socioeconomic gaps in who actually goes. Uh, 80% of the richest third of parents send their child back to school compared to only 65% of the poorest third of parents. So again, you know, there are a variety of different uh, factors that align uh, very much with family income that schools will have to also deal with, uh, providing the necessary reassurance, the necessary information um, to make parents comfortable sending their children back to school. And that's going to be clearly incredibly important in in making this transition um, over the next couple of weeks effective. I mean, Angela, if you, I mean, given the um, challenges that you just described, the um, uh, the issues with schools uh, making themselves safe, the issues with parents and uh, teachers being confident. I mean, uh, perhaps it's an unfair question, but I mean, what, what's your what's your guess as to the extent to which we will be back broadly to normal during September? Well, I, I hope that the majority, if not all, <laughs> um, parents feel confident enough to send their children back. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful for a, a, a quite a positive return. I, I think that there's been some kind of um, calls by unions for a plan B. I do think it is important to have that plan B, that kind of backup policy, because as we've seen, you know, we've seen quite large areas um, go into local lockdown. And I think that probably a little bit more reassurance and and information is needed um, for parents and uh, schools to know what happens when there is a case. And I think there's a little bit of a lack of clarity there. 
um, because it, you know it's all very well reassuring people that, that 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 schools are safe, but they need to to know then that when that schools aren't safe, that they will close. So I think there's a little bit more clarity needed there. So I think I'm positive for the first few weeks, um, but we will see uh, how how it pans out. And um, Sarah, the I mean, obviously the scale of lost um, learning over the last several months has been very substantial. And it's also been very unequally distributed. This is, uh, I think, a number of people have warned that this could put back uh, the cause of um, equality or greater equality in educational outcomes by many, many years. What, what's the scale of the task ahead if we are to avoid, um, if we're to avoid that? I mean, how much resource, how much effort will need to be put into uh, avoid a, a long run impact on the relative um, educational attainment of children from different backgrounds? So um, that's obviously difficult to say, you know, the extent to which children's outcomes have, uh, inequalities in children's outcomes have already been um, uh, widened as a result of those months we spent uh, at, at home. But there are a variety of factors that lead us to think that these might be big. Um, the first one, as I said, is that pupils spent now five months out of school and that loss in instructional time might be even more detrimental for disadvantaged children because they already started the lockdown you know, behind their peers in terms of attainment. The second reason is that we know their learning experiences uh, remote learning experiences have been vastly different from the experiences of more advantaged students. And actually, when we compare, for example, the gaps in learning time uh, between the richest and the poorest students before and during the lockdown, we see that at least for primary school students, those gaps have actually widened drastically. So uh, to give you an example, for primary school students before the lockdown, all students roughly spend six hours on learning uh, per day. Uh, but during the lockdown, there's a gap of 75 minutes per day between the richest fifth and the uh, poorest fifth. So that amounts to almost another school day, basically, spent you know, learning uh, for the richest students and not being spent for the poorest ones. So that is necessarily going to accumulate to big losses in learning. Uh, and the third factor I think that we need to um, take into account is also the fact that um, low-income households have been disproportionately um, more hit by this crisis in terms of their uh, finances and their employment. Low-income workers were more likely to work in shutdown sectors. So in the short term, their incomes were at least partially protected by policies like the furlough scheme. But in the medium to long term, this whole situation creates a lot of uncertainty for the employment and um, incomes of parents in low-income households. Um, and all this, what does it mean for children? It means less financial resources to spend on their children's um, learning and well-being. It also means 
uh, potentially greater parental stress among low-income households than uh, among high-income households. And that can be another driver of uh, worse outcomes for disadvantaged children. So a lot of different factors compounding uh, each other into creating a pretty bleak picture for the outcomes of disadvantaged children, especially relative to those of advantaged children. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that the first uh, few weeks in school will be spent uh, by teachers and school leaders in trying to assess you know, the extent and the scope um, of the gaps that might have been created as a result of those months in lockdown. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty challenging set of um, issues that you've you've gone through there, and a, an illustration of how potentially damaging the last several months have been. Um, Angela, as we move towards the end of this, perhaps you might want to reflect on what you think the key lessons of the last few months have been, and what the what the what the key challenges are as um, pupils hopefully go back to school. Um, okay, so I mean, I think that. Um, well, we definitely agree, given our findings as well, that there's going to be significant learning loss across um, all students, really, but there'll be big variation in that. So I think for teachers, it's, you know, it's a time to kind of work out where children are. But, you know, so it's going to be maybe quite difficult for them, even on a day to day basis, thinking, you know, there will be some people who are quite a long way behind and other people who aren't, any, you know, who have kind of kept up with online learning. I think, you know, I think the challenge will be it's 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 going to be different. Uh, children will be at different levels. They'll have got through different amounts of the curriculum um, and and so and they'll be teaching um, in a different environment. We'll have to see see what happens. So we've got the catch up program, of course, that um, and the money that government have provided um, for tutoring. It's relatively small scale, though, isn't it, given the number of children involved and not surprisingly, given that you know, finding all of those tutors that quickly would be a bit of a challenge anyway. Well, exactly, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, it's maybe for organisations like in ours um, and yours to kind of work out the extent to which the amount of money available for tutoring is going to be sufficient in order to close any gaps but there will be significant challenges for teachers. But I think that what we're saying um, from our research is there are definitely things that could be done uh, slightly better if we get back into the situation of remote learning again. Um, and clearly with the attendance problems in, in July, the government is, is doing the right thing by trying to encourage parents to send their children back to school. But you know, we have to wait and see to, to see whether or not that's effective or not. Well, I think that's uh, there's, there's some very important messages there. There's clearly a lot to be learned from what's happened over the last several months, particularly if we do go into lockdown again. I think uh, all three of us are strongly agreed that there is a huge, it's hugely important that all children do go back to school because the loss uh, from being away has been uh, enormous. And it's to be hoped that uh, parents will feel comfortable uh, getting their children back to school. We've certainly seen a big loss in learning over the last several months, and we've seen probably a big increase in socioeconomic gaps. And one thing we haven't talked about is the gap between uh, what looks like uh, quite differential provision in the independent sector from what we've seen in the state sector, which again could see itself play out in exam results uh, in years uh, in years to come. So much there to be um, concerned about, much there to 
learn from as we go into the next stage of the current uh, of the current crisis, um, and much really for government to be acting on in terms of providing appropriate, not just resources but also guidance and support uh, for schools as we go forward. Um, thank you very much to uh, Sarah and to uh, Angela for that. Uh, we will come to an end at this point, but if you enjoyed this episode, please do hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.